Hey, before we get to this episode of Income Investing, I want to quickly tell you about an online course that I came out with. It's called The Roadmap to Financial Freedom. To make a long story short, I talk about how investors and entrepreneurs can build enough passive income to replace their expenses and become financially independent. If you listen to my podcasts or read my articles, then you already know how thorough I try to be whenever I put out content. I try to give realistic, actionable information that can make a difference in your life. To learn more about the Roadmap to Financial Freedom course, just go to alexisasadi.net slash podcast and scroll down to the very bottom of the page. There will be a link to a two-minute explainer video that you can watch. The course costs under $10, and I explain why it's so inexpensive in that video. Again, it's alexisasadi.net slash podcast. That's A-L-E-X-I-S-A-S-S-A-D-I dot net slash podcast. Hey, it's Alexis Asadi, and welcome to the 25th episode of Income Investing, a show that explores different investments that produce income and or dividends. On today's show, we'll be taking a closer look at units of ownership in investment funds, which usually come in the form of shares or units. One of the key ideas that we're going to explore is something called classes or series. For instance, if you own a class B share in a fund, What does that mean? And how is it different from a class A share or a class C share? As we're going to see in a few minutes, this is not a mere technicality that only the most serious investors consider. It's actually a fundamental element of investing, whether into a fund or into any other business. So that's what we're going to focus on today. Also, as a side note, over the weekend, I was looking at the stats for this podcast. I saw that the majority of the people listening are in the U.S. and they're closely followed by Canadians, which I expected. What I did not expect was that the third largest audience would be in Israel. So to everyone in Israel who's tuning in, thanks for your support. It does not go unnoticed or unappreciated. If this is your first time joining us, thanks for your interest. The Income Investing Podcast is a show that covers any sort of investment, so long as it can pay monthly or quarterly dividends. We spent our first month or so together on real estate investment trusts, or REITs. After that, we went into direct mortgage lending, and we're now on the second episode of our segment about investment funds. With that said, I try to build up on the prior shows, so it might make sense to rewind back to last week's episode, creatively titled Introduction to Investment Funds, if you haven't already heard it. Now, there are a lot of different reasons to like the income investing strategy. First, income investments can produce monthly dividends, which you can use to supplement or even replace your regular earnings. If you get to a point where your passive income surpasses your expenses, you then reach a state that's known as financial freedom. I know that's an objective for a lot of people who are listening right now. Second, many income investments can also appreciate in value. As such, you can gain the best of both worlds, get paid each and every single month, and sell your asset for a profit if it goes up in price. Third, since there are so many investments that pay income, it's also easy to diversify across countries and industries. Fourth, many of these investments are publicly traded on major stock markets. As such, they can be relatively affordable. A lot of them actually trade for under $100 per share. 
And fifth, my personal experience at least, has been that income investing is a bit easier and more predictable than simply banking on a capital gain. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't be careful and do your research, but the fate of your investment doesn't have to be solely dependent on whether the markets go up or down. There are probably a dozen or so other perks to list off, but let's just leave it at five for now. So we started our segment on investment funds two weeks ago. We established that a fund is a business that gathers money from investors by selling them shares or units, and then it deploys that capital into various different assets. The goal is for the fund to generate a return for the investors minus fees. Now, some funds might focus on stocks, others might concentrate on real estate, and still others will focus on strategies like paying income or value investing. There are hundreds of thousands of funds out there, both public and private, which invest practically anywhere and anyhow. There's a lot of diversity in the investment fund ecosystem. One of the important terms that we learned along the way is called security. This is a broad legal definition that essentially covers any sort of investment offering that is not directly real estate. So if you bought shares in a company, you therefore bought a security. If you bought a property, you bought real estate and thus not a security. As such, many investment funds are in the business of raising capital by selling their securities to investors and using that money to invest in other securities, typically the securities of other businesses. This is a crucial concept to wrap your head around. So if you'd like me to revisit it, just let me know at alexisasadi.net slash podcast. Just leave me a message. Otherwise, I'll assume that we are all on the same page. We also talked about some of the pros and some of the cons about investment funds. On the plus side, you can use funds to invest in sectors that you may not want to or know how to do so yourself. For instance, if you want to invest in technology startups, you might find a fund that concentrates on that industry. It would presumably be managed by a professional and would give you a degree of diversity in that space. On the downside, however, you are likely going to pay a management fee, which can dilute your potential returns. We also saw that investment funds will generally share four commonalities. One, investors in the funds are owners and thus have equity in it. Depending on the structure, they will typically be given shares or units in the fund in exchange for their capital. Two, the fund will have a mandate, which spells out its objective. This is usually done in documents such as the Articles of Incorporation, the LP Agreement, the Declaration of Trust, or the Trust Indenture. Three, the fund will have a management team, which will be compensated for its management services. The managers will usually be a board of directors with executive officers, or trustees, or a general partner, again, depending on the legal structure. And four, individual investors will have a limited amount of power over the fund managers. As per the usual, let's get to a question from one of our listeners. Today, we have one from Arnold, who is in Calgary, Alberta. Arnold wanted to know if there is a difference between buying a stock and buying a share. Arnold, this is a really good question, and I should have talked about it last week. A stock and a share in a company are the same thing. The words can be used almost interchangeably. In fact, in Australia, the stock market is often referred to as the share market. So with my vernacular, I might say this company has issued 100 shares. But if someone asked me how much stock I own in it, they'd be asking how many shares I have in that company. 
So if you buy a stock on the stock market, you've bought a share or a unit in a business, again, depending on its structure. So thanks, Arnold. Also, I wanted to follow up on a discussion from episode number 23. One of our listeners in New York, Stefan, had asked whether I was aware of any cryptocurrency investment funds that pay income. At the time, I wasn't, and I still actually don't know of any that focus on distributing revenue. However, a few days ago, one of my friends, who's a financial planner, told me about a cryptocurrency index fund, which I thought was kind of interesting. So I figured it'd be a good time to share it, especially since we're on the topic of investment funds in general. So the name of this fund is called Crypto20, which was developed by a firm called Invictus Capital. Crypto20 itself is a token, but it has underlying investments in about 20 other cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, Ethereum, and others. The goal of Crypto20 is to give investors passive exposure to a range of virtual coins. Right now, it's available to investors on three cryptocurrency exchanges, including Buybox, HitBTC, and IDEX. So as I understand it, you're basically investing in a cryptocurrency, and that cryptocurrency owns a couple of dozen other cryptocurrencies. Full disclosure, I'm not an investor in any crypto deals, mainly because I focus on income-producing assets. So neither I nor my companies have positions in Crypto20, and I don't get any sort of compensation for talking about this fund here. I also haven't researched it beyond its website, which is Crypto20.com, and I don't know anyone at Invictus Capital. But speaking of promoting businesses, before we get into our main discussion, let me just tell you that our sponsor today is a company called Pacific Income. Pacific Income is a business that provides financing to entrepreneurs and real estate investors across Canada and the US. Since I reference Pacific Income quite often, and I'm coincidentally its CEO, I decided to spend an entire episode talking about it. You can simply go back to episode 21, which I published in early August, to learn more about the company, or you can visit the website at packincome.com. That's P-A-C-income.com. So as we covered last week, funds are usually divided into units of ownership, typically called shares or units. If the business is a corporation, investors would own shares. If it's a trust, they would have trust units, and if it's a limited partnership, they would have LP units. Each unit is supposed to receive an equal amount of the fund's earnings. So if there are 1 million shares in the fund, the earnings that management pays out should be divided 1 million equal different ways. So if you own 10 of those shares, you'd then get the earnings payable times 10. But if you look at the fine print when researching an investment, you will often notice that funds have different types of shares or units. They're usually divided into what's known as classes or series. For example, it may have class A shares, class B shares, and class C shares all into one fund. So what are classes and why does all of this matter? Well, to begin, classes are not just relevant to investment funds. They can exist in all businesses, whether they're structured as a corporation, a trust, or a limited partnership. They're actually quite common in companies both large and small. A class is a group of shares or units that has a distinct type of rights and characteristics, such as the right to vote, the right to earn dividends, the right to earn certain revenue streams or assets, and other rights and restrictions. In essence, they give certain powers and limitations to different owners. So let's take a look at a quick example. 
ABC Investment Fund has two classes of shares. There are 10 Class A shares and 100,000 Class B shares. Class A shares have the right to vote in the election of the fund's board of directors and other important matters of the business, but they don't receive any sort of financial gain. However, whoever owns those shares will ultimately control the direction of the fund because they control its management and decision-making powers. Class B shares, on the other hand, are entitled to 100% of the profits from the fund, but they don't have any voting rights at all. There's virtually an unlimited number of shares that a company could issue. They can be called anything, although they're usually divided into letters or numbers. But I guess if you wanted to divide your classes by animal names, you probably could. But no matter how you choose to cut it, the purpose of having classes is to make them different from each other. Classes can also come with any kinds of rights and restrictions, so long as they're legal. Class A shares don't have to have voting rights, and they don't have to be called Class A either. You could say that class elephant shares have voting rights, but class banana shares don't. So with that in mind, let's make an addendum to one of the points from last week's episode. When the fund manager distributes earnings across ownership units, it doesn't do so based on how many total shares or units there are in that fund. Instead, it has to do so based on the entitlements of each class. So let's go back to our ABC investment fund example. There are 10 Class A voting shares and 100,000 Class B non-voting shares. So in total, there are 100,010 shares in that fund. However, when management decides to make a payment to its shareholders, it would be divided only 100,000 equal ways. Those 10 Class A shares aren't eligible to receive financial earnings because their only power is to vote. So why do companies and funds in particular even have different share classes? Why not just treat all the owners equally and make it less complicated for everyone? Well, there can be any number of reasons to issue different share classes in a fund. A lot of the time, it'll depend on circumstance, but here are some of the most common ones. First, a fund might be designed to give one party control over the decision-making process. That'll often be the fund's founders or its manager. In that case, all or most of the voting shares would be allocated to that party. Other investors would have little to no say in the direction of the business. Second, a fund might raise capital from investors in different stages. It may want to reward earlier investors by selling subsequent units or shares with less attractive terms. For instance, it might have sold 100 million Class A shares for $10 each in 2005. In 2018, it decides to raise more money by selling another 50 million shares, but this time they're Class B, and they're sold at the same price. However, Class B shares are only entitled to profits after Class A shares have received a 10% return on investment per year. Third, a fund might divide its assets among classes. For example, a real estate fund might raise $40 million by selling Class A shares. It then uses the proceeds to buy an apartment building in Portland, Oregon, and 100% of the earnings from that building will go to Class A investors. The next year, the fund raises another $10 million, but this time by selling Class B shares, which are used to finance a land development project. The earnings from that project would be paid to Class B shareholders. They would not be entitled to any Class A profits, and vice versa. 
Fourth, a fund might pay commissions on certain types of classes. It might sell Class A shares directly to the public and charge no commissions at all to investors. It might sell Class B shares through a broker and pay a 5% commission on whatever it raises. And fifth, a fund might divide units into different liquidity characteristics. Class A shares might be redeemable at any time, but they cost $10 each. Class B shares are redeemable after five years, but they only cost $9. And Class C shares are redeemable at management's discretion, and they cost $8 each. It's therefore extremely important to understand the rights of your class. Oftentimes, investors assume that they will all be treated equally. That is, they think that they will share in both the profits and in the right to vote. In most cases, they don't discover otherwise until something goes wrong. So consider this imaginary example. ABC Real Property Fund has a great marketing strategy. It runs glossy professional advertisements on platforms like YouTube and Facebook about the impressive real estate that it owns and how investors have to date earned over 7% per year. John sees these advertisements and he is sold. He invests $10,000 into the fund without reading the offering documents. He simply assumes that he's going to earn a portion of the profits from a well-performing business. However, after a year, John only earns a 3% return. He calls into the company to inquire about whether there's been a mistake. But after talking to them, he learns that the ads on YouTube were referencing Class A shares, which were sold at $10 each. He bought Class B shares for $21. The shares have the same rights, but he paid over double the price for his class, so he's only earning half the profit when compared to Class A. John is frustrated, but there's little that he can do about it. So like I said earlier, dividing companies into ownership is not unique to funds. Snap Inc., for example, the company that owns the social media app Snapchat, caused a lot of controversy when it announced that it would not give shareholders voting rights when it goes public. Instead, there would be three classes of shares. The founders would have the majority of those powers, then early investors would have some voting rights, and finally, investors in the IPO would have none at all. So in reality, different classes can make a single company a completely different investment opportunity for different people. Let's say that you buy Class A shares and I buy Class B shares, but my shares don't get paid anything until you've earned a 10% annual return on your capital. When you think about it, the only thing that our deal has in common is that we're both hoping that the company performs well. But your investment is far superior to mine. As such, when you make an investment, whether into a fund or otherwise, don't just characterize it by company. Don't say to yourself, I invested in Facebook. Instead, say, I invested into Class A shares of Facebook. Class B shares, which are controlled by Mark Zuckerberg and other insiders, have 10 times as many votes as Class A. While you and Mr. Zuckerberg may have an interest in the same business, you definitely do not have the same investment. So how does one figure out what class or series they're investing in and what rights and characteristics are attached to it? Well, public companies will have to disclose all of that information in their offering documents, usually in the form of a prospectus. Many businesses issuing securities via private placement will also do that via offering memoranda, private placement memoranda, or otherwise. These documents are supposed to give prospective investors information about the opportunity. So presumably the class of unit or share would be material enough to include therein. 
However, if information about classes isn't readily available, it should be somewhere in the fund's governing documents, like the Declaration of Trust, the Articles of Incorporation, or the LP Agreement, etc. If you can't find it anywhere, then you should think carefully before proceeding. Also, keep in mind that not all businesses have different classes or series. They're common, but not mandatory. In the case of Pacific Income Limited Partnership, for example, the LP agreement provides for the ability to issue new classes or series, but it has never done so. So right now, there is just one type of LP unit. So I'm going to leave it there for now. Next week, we're going to look at how shareholders and unit holders and investment funds can earn a profit. Obviously, the fund has to generate a return, but what actually has to happen for investors to get paid? Thanks as always for spending your time with me. Next episode will be out on Wednesday morning Pacific time, so please be sure to check back in. If you can, please also take a moment to give the Income Investing Podcast a like or a share. That'll help me get the word out there to as many people as possible. I appreciate your support, and I'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.